When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, September 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Reeves threatens to sue the president. Then the SPLC says Parchman Prison is operating in violation of the Clean Water Act. And the state's charter school authorizer board rejects new applications. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. President Biden has ordered the Labor Department to implement a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal employees, as well as all employees of large American companies. The sweeping order has drawn the ire of conservative political leaders, including Governor Tate Reeves. He says federal vaccine mandates are, quote, tyranny and has expressed plans to join other Republican governors in suing the president. Matt Steffi is a professor at the Mississippi College School of Law. He speaks with Kobe Vance. There is no doubt that the federal government has the power to to issue a, van, a vaccine mandate along the lines announced by President Biden. Now, when we speak of the federal government, right, we're talking about the powers of Congress, the powers of the executive branch, the president and executive agencies. And there are some technical questions raised by the anticipated mandate that may present some legal issues and be subject to legal challenges. And and this is what I mean. If Congress passed a statute that explicitly mandated vaccines along the terms President Biden uh, announced, I I think there's no serious doubt that such a statute would be constitutional. It would speak specifically to this. It would represent the undifferentiated power of the federal government. And it would rest on precedent for vaccine mandates that go back almost a century. This particular uh, uh, policy which is still kind of under construction, 
is a little bit different. What President Biden has announced is a policy, a request to have a federal agency issue, OSHA, the, uh, the one that deals with occupational health and safety, to issue a emergency rule, an emergency policy to cover vaccine mandates uh, during the pandemic. Uh, that's a technical question of administrative law, what exactly what OSHA's authority is to act by emergency rule. As we know, statutes getting anything through both houses of Congress and signed by the president is complex and time consuming. Getting a permanent rule, workplace rule, through the federal rulemaking process is complex and time consuming and typically takes years. An emergency procedure rests on a particular statutory authority to address emergency situations. It has to be, the emergency has to be defined. There has to be uh, established reasoning for the policy. Uh, there has to, uh, the agency has to consider alternatives and so on. And that's the piece. How exactly can OSHA go about doing this? that will be subject to legal challenge. So do you think that the governor might have footing in this lawsuit to be able to over have this overturned? I'm not really sure what the governor's involvement adds or whether the governor is an appropriate person to bring this challenge, because we have to separate the politics of it out. Governor Reeds adds his voice to what, three or four or five or six governors who have already shot videos, held news conferences, made statements, pounding the table about their intention to challenge this. But this policy wouldn't apply to state governments, or at least I wouldn't expect that it particularly would. And so I don't know exactly how state government is involved with this. I understand the desire to get involved politically, but one might think that employees subject to the vaccine requirement or employers subject to the vaccine requirement would be the most obviously uh, involved people to bring a lawsuit. It's also useful to think of that this isn't one mandate that the president has suggested. It is mandates on the one hand that apply to federal employees, which stand on the absolute most solid legal footing, and then the ones that apply to larger employers uh, that are subject at least to this legal challenge that, well, maybe the federal government can do it, but this agency can't do it in this manner this fast. That challenge is out there, but I think really applies only with any seriousness to the ones, the, the part of the mandate that would apply to large employers. Uh, I, I think that the federal government can impose health and safety terms and conditions of employment on employees, uh, much like most any other employer can. There are constitutional limits that come into play, but those constitutional limits don't really speak to the basic authority to say, if you're gonna be in the military or work in the White House or the Department of Transportation, you have to have uh, a certain vaccines. There are vaccine requirements for federal employees already in place. This would be just adding to the particular list. Is there anything else that stands out to you about this case that um, Mississippians should know about? Well, I guess there's two 
really issues embedded in this. One is whether this is good health policy. And then two, how it should be announced. If it's good health policy, I think that the, the people who think it's good health policy tend to think the authority of OSHA is rather beside the point. Uh, people who think it's bad health policy, again, are looking for any avenue to halt it. I think the end of the day, what's important to Mississippians is will there be a mandate? The rest of it is is interesting mostly to lawyers. And I think there's a great political resonance that, that may tend to crowd out the debate of house policy and the way the federal government acts that really underlie this issue. Matthew Steffi is a professor of law at Mississippi College School of Law. Matthew Steffi, thank you for talking with us again today. It's always my pleasure. Thank you for your good work. Coming up, the Southern Poverty Law Center says Parchman Prison is polluting waterways. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's notorious parchment prison is crumbling. That much has been made clear by photos from annual health inspections, as well as leaked videos from inmates. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center says the prison's infrastructure is in violation of the Clean Water Act. The organization has sent a letter to state lawmakers summarizing alleged contamination issues. Vidi Bomzai is a staff attorney at the SPLC. So the Clean Water Act, there's a couple of violations, and one of them is that it has to do with the pure infrastructure of the water system at Parchment. The infrastructure is old, it's in disrepair, requires serious fixing to allow the water to be adequately filtered so that it can be you know, released off of the property. So that's kind of the first place where the Clean Water Act is being violated. The cliff stations have caused bypasses that have unlawfully discharged raw sewage into the surrounding water. So as a result of that, um, the system is not in compliance with its permit and it exceeds permit limits of the kinds of like chemicals and bacteria and things of that nature that can enter wastewater ditches. Are you saying that, so, uh, hold on, are you saying that raw sewage is going into potential drinking water? I would not go that far to say that raw sewage is going into drinking water, but there is uh, the letter highlights that there was a time that raw sewage was being dumped into a public waterway. And that went on for over a month because the lift station was not operating. So that raw sewage was being dumped into a public waterway that then goes out into uh, the Black Bayou, that then goes into the Sunflower River, and that ultimately feeds into the Yazoo River. Those are typically not where we get drinking water from, but people use these public waterways for a myriad of other things. Lots of people in the Delta and Sunflower County like to fish in these waterways. People, you know, make kayaks, make canoe. And also, the Clean Water Act, people who enjoy waterways just by looking at them, by being in their presence, people can um, sue under the Clean Water Act under something like that as well. So 
it is not drinking water that we're, con uh, we're concerned about in terms of the Clean Water Act, but it is uh, public waterways that are used for a myriad of other reasons. How long has it been going on? Well, our investigation began in 2017, but issues of conditions at Parchman have been stemming for decades um, at this point. And although our investigation started in 2017, I, issues with the water have been long stemming. At the same time, the Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department is investigating, and that investigation is ongoing. It's been a year and seven months and again, I think they're investigating deplorable conditions at Parchman. You're asking, along with the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Department of Corrections, the Mississippi Department of Health, and the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality to investigate and fix the problems. Has there been an investigation? Has there been an investigation by any agency of the state or the Department of Corrections itself? As far as I know, no, there has not been an investigation. The Department of Environmental Quality is responsible for issuing permits um, for wastewater or, or for uh, drinking water and wastewater at Parchman. Um, and uh, the Department of Corrections is responsible for providing data, discharge monitoring reports and um, additional data to demonstrate that they are in compliance with their permits. So the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality kind of monitors that kind of stuff, and they have indicated at various points, as we state in our letter, that the Department of Corrections has been in violation of those permits many times over the past several years for various different exceedances of uh, bacterial um, matter and things of that nature that are going into the water. But as far as a formal investigation, we don't know. Uh, we've never heard of anything from the Department of Corrections, environmental quality or anything, anyone else at the state level who's interested in kind of looking into this and solving this problem. I will say that the Department of Corrections is aware that the lift station and some of the infrastructure issues that are causing these problems are in serious disrepair. The legislature allotted some budget money to make those fixes in January of 2019. But as far as we know, those fixes have not begun and the construction has not begun. So they're, they've been on notice for quite some time, but nobody has been making any progress in actually addressing the problem. Are you also asking lawmakers to do something in this upcoming session, or is the idea to get the investigation done and then present it to legislators? You know, I think at this point, we're really hope we, we'd like to put the ball in the Department of Corrections court and let them, you know, recognize that this is, these are the problems. They're on notice of these problems, and they have an opportunity to solve the problem. I think lawmakers have an opportunity to push the Department of Corrections and say, this is an opportunity that you have in front of yourselves to solve this problem. And, you know, we, we kind of like to see how the Department of Corrections moves forward and then, you know, decide from that point forward what we what our next steps are. All right. Vidi Bamzai is a staff attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Vidi, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up, the State Charter School Authorizer Board turns down a batch of new applications. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. 
The Mississippi Charter School Authorizer Board denied two new applications for schools at a meeting yesterday. Rachel Cantor was in the room when it happened. She's executive director of Mississippi First, which is a local pro-charter nonprofit. She tells Rob Lane she's increasingly concerned about a disconnect between charter schools and the state. There were lots of comments that were made, and we only each had five minutes. So I primarily spoke about the fact that when you have multiple cycles where you have not approved any schools, and the issue is a lack of quality operators that are coming to you, then one of the things that you have to look at is what is it that is making Mississippi an unattractive space? And as someone who has worked in the charter school space in Mississippi for over a decade now, I shared with them my experience in talking to quality charter school operators, what they were looking for in coming to Mississippi. First thing they always ask is, what are the financial resources we're going to be able to tap, both in terms of startup money, because it takes an, an, a tremendous amount of money to open a new school, and also what does, does per-pupil funding look like that every public school in Mississippi gets on an ongoing basis? What does the philanthropic sector look like here in Mississippi to support any additional needs for a school? The second thing they look at is, where are we going to get talent? Who are we going to get teacher? Where are we going to get teachers? And I shared with the board that in the past, we really struggled with the funding question. We struggled with the talent question, but we were always able to say wholeheartedly that we had a very welcoming environment for charter schools. The legislature was highly supportive of the bill when it passed. We went back to the legislature multiple times in the first couple of years to try to solve problems that were that either people didn't consider or things that happened with the bill that needed to be fixed. And then we had the first authorizer board that was highly engaged and really wanted to, to have a quality charter school sector. And that has changed in the, in the last several months. We have a brand new board that basically has no relationship with the schools. And the schools have, are in a position now where they have been begging the authorizer to listen to them and to partner with them and engage with them on important policy things, such as around the performance framework. And when we start talking about recruiting other high-quality operators to come here, when they call me or when they call a school and ask that question, what is it like to work with the Mississippi Charter School Authorizer Board? The honest answer at this moment in time is that it's not great. You are, of course, the executive director of Mississippi First. Can you go into a little bit more detail on your organization's stance on charters? Mississippi First is one of the state's leading charter school advocates. Now, we represent a viewpoint that is we believe in high-quality charter schools as public options where kids need them. We do not believe that any and every charter school applicant should be allowed to open schools. So we do applaud the board in making sure that quality applicants are the only applicants that they want to approve. Uh, but we, so we are aligned on that. However, we do think that part of having quality charter schools is having quality policies that relate to charter schools, both in terms of the law and in terms of the agency that is tasked with charter school authorization and oversight. The schools who had their applications rejected today, how much do you know about them? And were you surprised that those applications were rejected? I don't know very much about them. The authorizer board does not make public 
really any of their materials during the application cycle. These are not well-known charter school applicants who have successful schools in other parts of the country. They were primarily new charter school applicants who were applying in Mississippi and sometimes in other parts of the country as well. So these were not, you know, well-known charter school management organizations or even well-known educators here in Mississippi who were looking to open their first charter schools. From sort of the seed level, from the grassroots level, how does a charter school come about? And from your perspective, what makes sort of a seedling charter school promising? And what do you see as potentially some pitfalls? Because, again, as you've said, you're in support of charter schools, but not necessarily all charter schools. So there are two primary pathways where schools open. The first is the pathway where you have something like a charter management organization that has several schools already that looks to expand to an area. They either want to have a second school where they already have a first school, or they're looking to open another school in a new area. Those are our CMOs. And like I said, we only have one of those in Mississippi. That's Republic Schools, and they operate three schools here in Jackson. So for them, opening a new school is about either internally promoting somebody on their staff to be the school leader of a new school or setting the school up and going out and hiring a principal. There's more of a clearly defined pathway for that. The other side of it is when we have what we sometimes call education entrepreneurs who are typically their educators who have great ideas about a new type of school that they want to run that fills a need in their community that is not being filled currently by the traditional school district. And those are, those are our other new starter independent charter schools. And we have four of those in Mississippi. We have two here in Jackson that are in that category, and then we have one in Greenwood and one in Clarksdale. The pathway to finding those people and supporting them and opening new schools is a lot less linear than it is for a charter management organization. And the, the challenge is to figure out what do those people already know about education and how can we help them learn about charter schools so that they can open and operate a great school. Because it is very difficult to open and operate a school from scratch. It's like starting a nonprofit. Um, you know, it's not the same as going out and, and taking a job in a school that's already established. You have to do everything. You have to create the transportation plan and the food service plan and you have to have an HR manual. You have to do all of these things. You have to go out and recruit teachers. You have to write a budget. So there's a lot of different skills that go into it that is a bigger job in some ways than just going to be a principal in a school that's already established. And so those people need a lot of training and support. And that infrastructure is what we have struggled with in the past in, in providing to people. And so when we look at applicants who come knocking and they don't have any of those things, they are going through the application cycle. They're not being provided any of those things by the authorizer board. And then it's no real surprise that they're washing out of the application cycle that they're getting denied. Because if they didn't come to the table already with all of those things ready, they're not getting it throughout the support system that's already available. And so what needs to change is that we need to find people who have those knowledge and skills, and then we need to support them if, that's, if we want to open more schools. Rachel Cantor is executive director of Mississippi First. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. 
Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.